There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And Borada, and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things cycling, walking, and wheeling in the UK and beyond, which means Wales as well, as we'll discover. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Laura Laker. And I'm Adam Tranter. And this time we are talking about roads. Are they good? <laughs> are they bad? And do we really need to take sides? In a week where the Prime Minister claimed that there is a side where driving is concerned, we have someone special with us who's taking perhaps a more balanced approach to transport. Lee Waters is Wales Deputy Minister for Climate Change. And in February 2023, following a roads review, the Welsh Senate announced it wouldn't be investing in new roads unless it contributes to a modal shift towards public transport, walking and or cycling. So welcome, Lee. Thank you for having me. Whose side are you on? I'm on the side of the people, and not just the people who are here today, but the people who are yet to be born. And I think that's the crucial thing. We in Wales have something called the Future Generations Act, where we should take into account the rights of those who are, who are yet here. Because we know, you know, the science is absolutely bang on, crystal clear, what we're heading into. And we need to make policy that bears that in mind, rather than kicks the can down the road yet again. So how did this legislation come about in February 2023 and how difficult was it to get over the line? So after the last election, Mark Drakeford, the Welsh First Minister, created a climate change ministry to bring together the main domestic emitters of climate change into one department to try and break down the silos. Because we've got five-year targets to get to our 2050 trajectory and they're hard and going to get harder. So we brought together transport, which I lead on, energy, planning, housing, regeneration, environment, I think something else, I can't remember, it's a lot. Uh, and Julie James and I do that between us. She's the minister, I'm the deputy minister. And we looked at, well, where are the roadblocks here? Where are the areas we know that we need to make better progress on? And transport is the laggard when it comes to carbon emissions. Something like, you know, buildings and energy have been reduced by 40% since 1990, which is the UN baseline. Transport's reduced by 6% in that time. Now, if we keep that level of progress, we're not going to hit our targets. So we were determined to take a sort of a strategic, systematic approach. And we looked at, well, what is the role of road building in this? Because we followed this predict and provide approach for so long in this country, which is traffic is projected to grow. We'll build more roads to cope for it which then fill up and we build even more roads and round we go. So it was an attempt to disrupt that really and try and find what was a sensible way of both meeting our carbon targets, but also bringing about a shift in behaviour. Interesting. I remember um, when the Active Travel Act 
came out it was it was sort of introduced and then there was a initial plan in which councils in Wales came up with a network of cycle routes and then that was the starting point after which they would start to develop those cycle routes improve bits and create a national network and it was really radical at the time and I think it still is and now obviously the roads you know you're not building new roads unless they create modal shift is radical and how kind of hard was that publicly? Well, the theme of the two of them, I think, is trying to take a long-term view. So the Active Travel Act I started campaigning for when I used to run Sustrans in Wales way back when. And it struck me coming, when I was a journalist, I came into, you know, I'm not interested in cycling. I wasn't particularly an environmentalist. There was a problem I saw. And one of the problems was that the way we treat roads and the way we treat facilities for non-car users is very different. So there is a legal duty to develop and maintain a network of trunk roads in Wales. There was no equivalent for cycle paths for, for pavements. So I thought, well, let's try and change the structure here. So we created this now legal duty for local authorities to, to map and plan the network of future routes. So to look where the gaps are and to fill those gaps, that was the, sort of the legislative bit of it. Now, it's been in place 14 years. It's mixed success, I would say. But what it does do is requires every local authority to think about how we connect people and places. And they can only then access funding if they then put it towards developing that route. So over time, it'll start to build up a coherent network. I guess the weakness is, if a local authority isn't particularly interested anyway, we don't really have any tools to make them interested. And that's, you know, I think that is the big gap we've got at the minute between national strategy and local delivery. And I think that's where we need to be focusing our our efforts next. Yeah, it's kind of become a bit of a, well, it has become a bit of a culture war in England, certainly. Sure. I don't know if you have the same problem in, in Wales. Yeah, well, we certainly, we know the other thing we're doing is from this September, we're changing the default speed limit in residential areas to 20. And that's creating, as you might imagine, a fair bit uh, of noise. It's the first time I think Spain has done this as a national default. We're the second. And again, it's the it's the detail of the delivery of which roads are included, which roads are excluded which is causing some of the tension. But yeah, for sure, there are definitely, politically, people are trying to weaponize this as being anti-car, anti-motorist, anti-growth, the usual stuff. And it's interesting, Cornwall Council, Conservative-led Cornwall Council, are also uh, looking to take a county-wide a residential 20. And, you know, their kind of view is, it's interesting because, you know, they're Conservatives, we've got strong Conservative opposition in Wales to our 20s. And they, you know, they're saying, well, residents think they want it, they think it's popular, they think it's safe. Whereas you know, Conservatives of Wales are trying to weaponize this as some kind of broader culture wars, you say. And I just don't think it'll stand the test of time. I think, you know, it's noise and noise passes. Mm. Have you kind of polled people on, on these measures? Yeah. Do you get a sense of how, how much support, how much opposition? Yeah, so, it's, so, it's, so we've done two national opinion polls. One showed an 80% approval, but that was after COVID. So there was a, still an effect of people liked quiet streets. We did it again a year later. It was down to the mid-60s. So it's popular, not universally popular, clearly. What's interesting is that you tend to find people want slower speeds in their streets, but they don't want slower speeds (laughs) on their journeys to work. And that's the the paradox. Speed nimbies. Yeah, uh, for sure. And what, what we know from the work Phil Goodwin has done on congestion charging is that you tend to find a dip in support as you come to implementation. So it starts off popular in principle, as you get to implementation, it becomes less popular. And then as it comes in, it goes back up to being popular again. So we're experiencing a bit of that as well at the moment, I think. Yeah, and it is interesting that it was popular during the pandemic when people could see these kind of measures enforced on them through, obviously, um, other means. But then, you know, what you see outside your house, I guess, is what you what yeah. you can imagine. It's hard to imagine. And change it's is different. hard. You know, when I drive a 20, it feels really weird. You know, it feels really odd, uncomfortable when you're used to driving at 30, particularly yeah. depending on the layout of the road and so on. But once you get used to it, you know, three, four, five weeks, yeah. it's, you, know, you change, don't you? Yeah. And we've done, you know, Wales is really good. It's really, I'm, so I'm staying in London at the moment, which I don't do very often. And the recycling in London is really weird. You don't recycle food waste, which is bizarre. Mm. So in Wales, we recycle everything. And as a result, we are the third best in the world at recycling. Now, 20 years ago, we were the worst in Europe. Now, we've done, a, again, a systematic long-term change. And what we've done is made recycling easy. So we've taken away the points of friction. And so now people have habitually started to think it's no big deal to separate your food waste and your glass and your plastic and your paper. It's just what we do. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. And I think it's that behaviour change spectrum that I hope we can also achieve when it comes to transport. And I think, you know, the common theme here in all climate change stuff, we need to make the 
right thing to do, the easiest thing to do. Because people will do what is easiest. And, you know, for 70 years we've made jumping in a car, good driving down the road, the easiest thing to do. And we've made public transport and cycling cumbersome. And if we turn that on his head, people will change. If we expect people to be heroes, some people will be, most people won't be. I think the job of government is to rewire the system to make the choices we need, know we, policy and evidence tells us we need to encourage more of, the easiest thing for citizens to do. Do you think sometimes there's a danger in making grand announcements and big big policy announcements on a, on a, on a big scale? And, and actually, sometimes that can be counterproductive. You know, we're going to change. Overnight, everything's going to change because of this. Um, people don't like that. And actually, you could affect the same changes, but we're making much less noise about it on a, on a slightly more granular level and slightly more incrementally. And perhaps that's one of the lessons that I think collectively over the three years we've been doing this podcast, that I think one of the conclusions we might have learned, I might be speaking on your behalf erroneously here, but is that a lot of the kickback we're getting, for example, on LTNs at yep. the moment might be as a result of us collectively going, hey, look, we're going to roll out LTNs on every street and it's going to be amazing and you're all going to love them. And sometimes in, in, in a matter of weeks, yeah. you know, even almost overnight. Trumpeting uh, it. In, 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 you know. uh, yeah, compared to what people are used to with transport implementation. Which is slow and gradual and just, um, you, it creeps up on you without you even, oh, no, well, that's changed. And then you kind of move on because, do you see what I'm getting It's at? a really interesting question. I don't really know the answer. I think it depends. So on active travel, I've definitely been a fan of under-promise and over-deliver. Mm. Because mm. I think people saying, you know, I hate the word in politics, transform. We're going to transform mm. this. It's bollocks. Because you're probably not really, We're not going to transform it, are we? <laughs> no, let's, let's aim for, let's make it better. Let's make it better. I know, I'm, I'm, we can all sign up to make it better. Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight, particularly when things like behaviour change. That takes a generation or more. As I say, recycling has taken us 20 years. Mm. Um, so I don't, I'm a big fan of underplaying some of that stuff. The 20s are different because you have to flick a switch. If you're going to change the default speed limit overnight by law, yeah. you know you have to flick a switch. And we've tried the zone approach again for 15, 20 years, and it's cost a lot of money. It hasn't done very much. We're doing really. it sort of area by area. Yeah, that's not worked. So well, 1% of the roads in Wales are 20 they're not enforced. The police will not enforce 20 zones. So it's interesting. I'm, one of the experiences of this last few years, so four years we've been going through this process on the 20s, and Phil Jones, who I know, Adam, you work with in, in, in the Midlands, has been really helpful for us and led the report. If you're interested, and if you, if you, if you, if you were search um, the 20-mile-an-hour task force in Wales, Phil Jones did a good piece of work there with a bunch of experts looking at the best way to bring this in and, and set and advising on a, a default speed limit. So currently the default is 30. Uh, you can make a case for 20. We're turning that on his head. So the default in areas where there are street lighting will be 20, but you can make a case for 30. So changing the, the burden of proof. And I think that is significant. But the, the engagement of the police during this, all this has been really interesting. So when I first met the police four years ago, they were, well, it's our policy not to enforce. I said, well, hold on a second, you know. We make policy. You implement the law. It shouldn't. <laughs> something's going wrong here somewhere. Um, but but they. I would have liked to be in that. <laughs> but I must say they've 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 been brilliant and they've really come along with us and they're now working with us in in implementing this. There's still some you know some frictions here because they haven't got the resources. So they don't want to create an expectation they're going to be you know with a speed gun on every corner because they're not. And also they've got this big thing about policing by consent and they don't want to be the agents for implementing a policy that doesn't have public consent, which then breaks down their broader relationship with the public, which, you know, I can understand <clears> that. <throat> so there's there's that yin-yang to be, to be had there. But the way, where we've come out on enforcement, I think, is a sensible position, which is we'll take an education-first approach, but there will be enforcement for people who are taking the mickey. So if you're doing over 20, you can get caught by a camera. But generally, mm. if you're doing up to mid-20s, you will get you know a talking to, either by the fire brigade or by the police or by school children. We've, in one pilot we've done, which is very effective. Yeah, that's um, quite awkward, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It works. We, we had um, in the West Midlands in, in Sanwell, um, there's a children's court where um, wow. if, the, if people are caught speeding at a sensible level, that not sensible level, but at a level that's not extreme speeding, they have to be hauled in front of a court of, of kids. And oh, uh, I'm told, I've not been to one, but I'm told that um, you know people leave sort of crying because it's, it's such a humiliating and it gets really deep inside of what you have to assess. I think the interesting thing on speed 
limits is is this kind of conventional wisdom that I've heard in local authorities sometimes is that oh well we can't do shouldn't do 20s can't do 20s because no one will abide to it you know yeah. the percentile of the speed is so much higher yeah but actually what Phil Jones says to me is that you know when you bring the speed limits down the people that were doing 40 in a 30 yeah. are now doing 30 in a 20 yeah. which is if they be- kill somebody is a much better outcome yeah. regardless of whether they're abiding by the letter of the law or not to make our street safer and, and I think that's probably a bit about the enforcement approach isn't it definitely well we've trialed this in eight different parts of Wales in deliberately mixed communities and the evidence is quite clear the number of people doing over 30 has dropped dramatically as we know the stat if you hit it 30 you're five times more likely to be killed than if you hit it 20 uh, the average speed does come down and for every one mile an hour average it falls the casualty rate drops by six percent so again real win there from in terms of harm but it's hovering around the mid-20s is the average speed in, in 20 miles an hour. So it's not, we're not going to get 20 exactly overnight, but I think it, it will come down. And crucially what's happened, I think, is that the, the idea of normal changes, and I think that's the big win. People start to get used to going a bit slower, and as a result, they're far more aware of their mm. environment. Mm. So, they're far, so from a walking and cycling point of view, you know, it's a big win because people are far more likely to take notice of cyclists and people trying to cross the road. So it, it definitely has a big nudge impact. And over time, we can then target enforcement in a sensible, common sense way of where that needs to happen. So one of the things that, you know, you've been doing, obviously, is the 20 zones. Another thing is the side road zebras, which I think would be good to get, get into. A lot of our listeners in England, especially, probably would be listening to this and kind of thinking, oh, this all sounds good. I quite like a bit of this, but actually some of the centralised legislation prevents you from doing things like blanket 20s and side road zebras. Wales, however, can do that because of its devolution. So without going into too much policy wonk detail, could you just sort of lay out the flexibility that the Welsh Government has to do some of these more groundbreaking changes that perhaps haven't been given time in, in English Parliament? Well, actually, local authorities have a lot of these powers themselves. You know, local authorities are the local highway authority. Legally, they own the local roads. So, for example, in the 20s, what we're doing is changing the national framework. But it's local authorities who are sovereign here. They're the Mm. ones who actually decide what the speed limit is. We're changing the default, but local authorities could theoretically just say, fine, we'll just turn them all back to 30s. So so I think in in, my point is in England, I think Mm. councils have far more power than they realise or mm. give themselves permission to use. Mm. They would, I, I agree, but like, let's take Birmingham in my patch. They they wanted to do a blanket 20. They wrote to the Secretary of, of yeah. the State. They can't afford to do 20 road by road yes. using these. So they need the default yes. national limits sure. to change. And the same with side road zebras. We have side road zebras in our, you know, to trial them in our devolution ask, which has been kind of warmly welcomed, but we would require national permission, national legislation. Otherwise, you you risk... I guess, the wrath of central government in a way that you can do this and give more power to local authorities, I guess. Yeah, well, if you know, I'm not a nerd on these things, so you need to ask Phil Jones about the, you know, the, the individual regulations and so on. But we have trialled the side roads in Cardiff and the trials have been successful and the results are encouraging. In fact, Brian Deegan, when he came to speak to, to me and some officials, recommended going big time on side roads as one of the most impactful things you mm. can do, which isn't particularly controversial, that can be done you know, fairly simply, without massive expense, and has a real impact. And we should say, because I just need to get myself out of policy wonk mode myself, but that's where I was saying we shouldn't go that, but I went straight into that. <laughs> um, we, side road zebras are effectively zebra crossings as we know it, but without the Belisha beacons and oh, that's some of the, what they are. I, some was, of the expensive I was about stuff. to ask. So you're, I, I you're felt know, silly having, for not knowing well, at this table. Having been at the, having been at the Tour, <laughs> Tour de France, Ned, you know, and being in Paris, you'll note that actually if you walk in a straight line in a yeah. European city like Paris, every single side road has yeah. a painted zebra crossing on it. Yeah. It's just normal. Yeah. 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 Um, and we don't because every zebra crossing has to have a Belisha beacon. They can cost, you know, the electricity and everything like that could cost upwards of £70,000, £100,000. So the, right. the proposal is could we have a bit of what Central Europe has got, which is using paint, and they might cost more like four hundred or five hundred pounds. And they're informal, but people, yeah. but, but people respect them. That's what's yeah. interesting because yeah. they send a signal. Of how again back to this normal idea, which I think is the crucial thing here. So you send signals, and actually, you're not the, what we require you to do or from, to fit in around here is to is to respect somebody crossing a side road, and this this white line will tell you you should. Yeah. 
can't force them. You don't have to, but it generally works. Yeah, although I would say that's building on a long tradition of when you turn right, your default setting as a motorist is to give way to people crossing the road, isn't it, mm. in, in Europe? Because that's very clearly signalled. Yeah. And we have that we, now, but it's new. It's new. Yeah. So that's again... The highway code. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is the plan for those then? Are they You've trialled them. Are they going to be rolled out on mass? Will that be down to local authorities? So again, down to local authorities. So you know, what we really have is a... And you're right, devolution does give us flexibility and freedom which is why we wanted it and you know that's why we had extra powers and that's why we were kind using of the that's kind of the point isn't it it is absolutely <laughs> the point you know bill clinton talked about the u.s system with the, with the federal system with the laboratories of uh, experimentation mm. and that's how i think we should look at devolution in the uk mm. and scotland's doing some really interesting and some good stuff on active travel mm. london obviously has been doing some good stuff the west midlands manchester Let's all try different stuff. So, for example, the Active Travel Act, we've taken a legislative approach. We've taken a strategic, planned approach. Others haven't done that. Let's see how that goes. There are strengths and weaknesses to that model. Um, so I'm mm. a big fan, a big fan of We should be just a little less uptight about uniformity. We have a very centralist culture in the UK. Uh, and this is something, you know, to, to bring the politics into it. You know, the UK government, there's a, there's a, there's a broader ideological battle going on here. You know, there's the the the, the Boris Johnson uh, government in particular, and it's continued under this one, to pretty much take a view that devolution was a mistake, and they have this thing they called you know, aggressive assertive unionism, where they primarily aimed at Scotland. Wales is really always an afterthought in these things. Scotland is what gets people excited, but they're worried about independence. They want to pull it back, so they're trying to say, well, you know, everything should be. Union Jack everywhere should be one same for everybody, and anything that's different, like twenty mile an hour roads in England, in Wales, that's a bad thing because it'll confuse people. These are the arguments you, you get here. Or actually, if we have a more of a decentralized, relaxed approach, we say, well, different bits will try different things, and we'll learn from each other. I think that's pretty grown up, really. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear um, politicians talking about things not being perfect or, you know, trying things and seeing how it goes. Because I think it, think it can be sort of quite uptight about yeah. this is the way to go. Yeah. We've been very clear and, you know, this kind of language is just quite nice to be a yeah. bit more, we don't know. Well, I think it's important to say we don't know. And I think, you know, that's why people have lost a lot of trust in politics and politicians, because there's a there's a gap, isn't it, between what you as your common sense knows this. Well, they're just talking rubbish. Yeah. We know they're talking rubbish. They know they're talking rubbish. I, when I used to be a political interviewer and I used to get really frustrated by politicians who never answer the question, who just give political speak and go round and round in circles and from their point of view that was a win because they didn't get into trouble but they didn't say anything and people switch off and I think as part of rebuilding trust in politicians and politics we just need to be people honest and real now that comes with risks you know I say things at times which gets creates headlines and gets me into trouble it passes but you know it's it's out of our, out with our political culture because everybody is so safe and we can we can get away with a bit in wheels because our media is so weak if, you know, if I was to say or do some of the stuff I say and do as a Westminster minister, then the Daily Mail would be screaming at me. But do they leave Wales alone? They leave Wales alone, more or less. You know, they're trying to they're weaponize, the they weaponize us when elections come around, but generally <laughs> we're ignored. So, you know, you can therefore be a bit more mature, I think. Interesting. Hmm. So this is very interesting. Mm. Have you been, I mean, this is probably the question I can exclude you from, Adam, because, you, you know, you work with Andy Street, so I don't want to put you in an embarrassing position. He's obviously a conservative, doing some very good stuff, but he is a member of the Conservative Party, etc. But Laura, uh, Lee, have you been surprised by the way that this, and literally in the last 24 or 48 hours, it seems to me, has now been identified as um, something that the Conservative Party seems to feel has can bear electoral fruits for them. And they seem to be going very hard, shutting yeah. a lot of this stuff down, seemingly, or, or at least floating the idea that it could or should be shut down. I mean, I've been quite perplexed by yeah. it, actually. And um, it, I find it a little bit upsetting. But yeah. I, and I'm not... I'm not I don't know. What do you think, Laura? Do you think it's politically adroit of them? I think it's... Well, it's reactionary. There's been um, representative survey up to representative survey that shows that people want to cycle more. They want choices. Adam's Bike is Best campaign did a survey of people and found that almost half of people were spending more than 10% of their income on their cars. And that goes up to 19% when you have a finance deal. We've invested in roads for so long. And then that's all the choice that people have. I mean, I 
yeah, where I grew up, you had to learn to drive. It was rural Somerset. I'm sure I've talked, said this before many times, but you know, there's so many people around the country and it's about access to jobs and access to education and health and social opportunities. And it really impacts every area of our lives. And I just think it's a massive mistake. And He's not listening to his advisors. I, I think it came as a surprise to the DFT. Apparently, they weren't really aware of what was happening until it kind of happened. This is what I think Peter Walker at The Guardian reported on this. Yeah, it's just like bloke. It's kind of bloke in the street stuff, isn't it? It's like, oh, all this stuff's changing. We want to be for the motorist. But actually, I think it's a big mistake. And and yeah. Do, do, you, do you feel that they've this has come about partly because of the result of the, the Uxbridge, Uxbridge um, yeah. by-election? That they yeah. Got, ooh, this is potentially fertile yeah. territory for us. So Ulez, and 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 am I right in thinking as well? Sorry, Lee, I don't want to sort of exclude you from this. Please chip in as well. But but um, am I right in thinking, Laura, that Grant Chaps in those negotiations about TfL funding made the Ulez extension and implementation mandatory yeah, as part, part of, of that funding, funding deal. process? Yeah, it was part of the funding deal. It's um, yeah, yeah, it was part <laughs> of the funding deal. And now it's a bad thing. Mm, yeah, it was Boris Johnson when Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor. And yeah, now he's sort of about turning because he sees the potential votes in it. But I think it's, as I say, I think it's a massive mistake because I don't think people are against this stuff. People want clean air to breathe, you know, nationally. It's it's 4,000 people a year dying prematurely in London. Kids are growing up with smaller lungs because of air pollution. And actually, I've sat down and talked to people. I was visiting family in Somerset and people were asking me, oh, is ULES really this bad? And I was saying, well, actually, you know, it's, it's not an easy discussion to have there are people who are going to be disadvantaged but ultimately do we want our kids growing up with smaller lungs and I just think this is not the conversation that we're having it's all about political point scoring as I understand it as well the 53 percent of London households that have cars mm. around about 80 to 90 percent of those cars that are owned by those 53 percent are ULES compliant already compliant exactly I think that's the commons so, part isn't it going back to right? the 20 and, and I was going to yeah, ask about right. 20 and in, in the learnings from ULES is that actually there's not that many people that are affected but the the kind of conceptual part of the policy it seems to be where the politics is moving to the kind of you know the fear of control or coercion or you know, are you, whereas actually are you the reality exempt is from all of different. this in Wales, Lee? So these debates, this is sort of, no. we're having a bit of a London-centric thing no, here. No, express, no. So look, there's a lot to unpack here, what mm. you just said. So first of all, I'd say this agenda does not need to be partisan. It really doesn't. And I've tried yeah. very hard in Wales, particularly on active travel, to make it a cross-party issue. Because there's no party, there really isn't any need for any party politics in this at all. Mm. The broader point then about why the Conservatives are looking to weaponise speed limits and so on, I think is, is classic Linton-Crosby strategy. You know, we've seen it before. They always try and look for something to blame and something to make people angry. Wedge issues. And this is the right they've been doing this in America for, for years. It was a, it's a standard tactic. It's a, you know, look over here, the house is on fire to avoid addressing the other stuff that really actually matters. You know, I think Boris Johnson used to call, call it the dead cat strategy. So, this, you know, it works to a degree because it takes the focus off and it gets people talking. And amongst, it energises the base. So there are, you know, there are a group of people we know, 20 to 30% of people, who feel very, very strongly about this stuff, who get very angry about it, who don't want to change, and this works very well with them. Uh, and, and you know, so there's a political logic to that, if you like. It's bad policy. It's, you know, defensible short-term politics, but that's but that's all it is. And it, and it doesn't last. Now, there are lots of conservatives, conservative Cornwall are, are leading the way on the, the 20s. Mm. So it, it, I don't think it works out there beyond London. In terms of the London parliamentary media bubble the game playing, you can see the point of the game. I think what's very interesting, I went to a conference in Cambridge University a couple of weeks back, and it was a sort of centre-right sort of theme to the conference. And what I find, I can't, I can't work it out, but this, there's definitely an ideological framing divide here between people who see climate change as a problem and something the government should actively plan to tackle, and that involves asking people to change their behaviour, but then those on the right, this as we saw during COVID, very similar during COVID, I think, you know, the, the way the attitude the UK government took on COVID versus the Scottish and the Welsh government, which were basically the role, the state should be active, it should be 
protective, whereas the instinct of Boris Johnson in London, we'll see more of this as the inquiry comes out, was very much laissez-faire, standoff, let people make choices, it's freedom, you need to trust people. And I think that's the, that's the kind of divide. And as a result, you can, a lot of the centre-right view on climate change is stand back. It's not as much of a fuss as everybody says it's going to be. And even if it is, we shouldn't be leading on it because the short-term cost to the economy and the jobs is too great. And it's really interesting. And and people get really angry about it in a way I just don't understand. So I had a couple of very unpleasant conversations with people there who just got angry out of nowhere uh, about uh, some of the stuff we're doing on roads or stuff on uh, renewable energy. Renewable energy, terrible things. Really expensive, terrible. We should just be nuclear. How can you get so anti-renewable? What's wrong with renewable energy? You see, it's a pretty... It's a no-brainer, isn't it? But but it's some, there's something in the water, I think, and I don't fully understand it. But it's it's about identity, I think, and it's about culture, and it's about political framing. And I think that's what the Conservatives are trying to tap into. I think one thing I I'm fairly neutral in politics, but I'm probably a centrist to be described as one. But centrist uh, dad, centrist dad, I'm probably I'm literally a centrist <laughs> dad. Um, but uh, one thing I've really noticed, you know, the Conservative Party is a very broad. Church, and I've noticed that it seems to be down to people's view of what freedom is, yeah. uh, and through the lens of, of freedom. So, obviously, for some people, cars equal freedom, but other people's freedom causes Absolutely. other people's uh, oppression. You know, and, and it's not even in. It, it's very hard to kind of identify and say, oh well, it's this faction or whatever, because you know, one of the people that I've found fascinating on social media more recently is Tom Harwood from GB News, who is a young urbanist style of the, yeah. the Conservative Party. So, you know, he's coming out to bat for low traffic neighbourhoods saying, no, they're great. This is what we this is what we, we need. Yeah, he's quite an so anomalous voice. It's not it? it's not as yeah. simple as that. Mm. But I think the framing of freedom is really interesting and that's certainly you know what I try and uh, try and focus on because we're in the West Midlands and all councils, all you know, par- parties are, are trying to give people more choice and more freedom. And I, I saw a tweet yesterday, which I haven't shared, but um, I, I really like it. And it's from a guy called Robert Jameson, and he says, "How would you feel if you needed a license to travel out of your home zone? What if you couldn't leave without an escort until you were seventeen? What if you had to pay every time you wanted to move around?" That's car dominance for you. So for what people people are saying it might be 15-minute cities in another lens are another area of, of coercive control where people have no choice. Well, that, I think choice is the key, and this is the framing I try to use on this, is around the roads review and, and everything else, is we want to give people genuine choice about how they travel. They currently don't have mm. genuine choice. You mentioned rural Somerset. In lots of Wales is rural. Lots of Wales is poor. And people have to get a car. Because we've created a society where car use is pretty much compulsory if you want to access key services and jobs. And it's very inconvenient if you don't want to. Yep. And that's deliberate. You know, that's not happened by accident. It's not, you know, it doesn't happen elsewhere. It's a choice we've made and we can make other choices. Yep. And I think we should talk about this, about giving people genuine choices. If you genuinely had a choice to make a journey without having a car, mm. that's a good thing for choice in terms of freedom and the libertarian viewpoint. That's a good thing. And that's what we should be doing, is reorienting the system to give actually give people choice. Because we've, we've engineered a system where they don't have choice. And I think that's a, that's, you know, that's a bad thing. But I was really interesting digging into this some more. So there's a psychologist at Swansea University who's published a paper on what he calls motor normativity. The Guardian wrote a piece on our friend on Dr. Ian Walker, who Dr. was our Ian first Walker. ever episode guest. Ah, the right. Well, it's great. It's fascinating work he's done. And you, again, the paper is short. It's available easily on search engines. And I think that's what this is, Adam, is, is that we've created this idea that it's normal the freedom is about jumping in the car and to hell with everybody else. That's normal. So he's done this example in his, you may have discussed this with him in his work, about, about a questionnaire they did with the exact same wording on people smoking, the ability of, the right of someone to blow smoke in your face, essentially. I don't have the wording in front of me, but that was basically it. Versus the right of somebody to pollute you with their exhaust. And, you know, 80% of people thought blowing smoke in your face was a really bad thing. But 80% of people thought it was fine if you didn't blow your exhaust because we've, we've made motoring normal. I think the same, same on uh, 20s. You know, we've made it in Wales, 80 people a year die on the road. Half of those in 30 mile an hour speed limits. 2,000 people a year have ser- are seriously injured. And we, sh- like, we shrug our shoulders. That's just normal. We would not accept that in, in any other sphere. I mean, other sphere. of course, that's fun, but it's not particularly fair, is it, that comparison? Because, you know, if, as a motorist, and I think we're all probably motorists from time to time, 
You're not going to sit there and justify the cigarette on grounds of necessity. This isn't a cigarette I have to smoke. But many people will think about almost every journey that they take. Driving, this is a journey I have to... Driving at 30 isn't a necessity, either, though, is it? No, no, but I'm just... The, the mentality thing, there's a, there's a much more rooted logic to that kind of reaction that that stands up to scrutiny. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate sure. a little bit here. I think of my dad, who has mobility problems, his only way of getting around where he literally needs the car to move, sure. to move around. So he's not blowing smoke for fun. Sure. You know, so there's a... It's a slightly unfair comparison that I think... Well, I'm not sure it is because, you know, clearly some car journeys are essential and people have no alternative but to use a car. Yeah. And cars are brilliant. I have a car. I yeah. love driving a car. I'm not anti-car. Yeah. Uh, what I'm anti is making my only choice of driving yes. a car. Yeah. And uh, Listen, I'm on your side. I'm brushing yeah, yeah. aside. Okay, I'm just making the counter argument to your, yeah. your devil. Uh, <laughs> is that, you know, we, we, we all the negative effect of that are somehow priced in and seen as acceptable. Yeah, totally. In a way that we wouldn't accept in other areas. So think about, you know, I was cycling here this morning through all these building sites and they've all got these signs saying, you know, zero casualty, safety culture. Considerate constructors. Yeah, exactly. We no longer accept on the building site that anybody will die as a result of building a large building. Mm. Now, that wasn't the case 30 years ago. Mm, mm, and mm. that culture change of saying death is not acceptable building site is not the culture we transpose on motoring and roads and and to prove your point in the most tragic and extreme way you know the deaths at that primary school in, in Wimbledon just a, just a few weeks ago as a result of it well who knows what but a car was going too fast and to, and to, to sort of set that up and to, to float the idea that we'll now resist any any urge to kind of or you know reduce speed in urban streets seems extraordinary well, I think back to Adam's point I think you know the battle ahead of us is in this framing around freedom I think that's absolutely yeah, right I think you're right so you know the freedom to be able to drive a large gas guzzler heavy vehicle uh, is more important than the impact that has on communities and I think you, know, you look at the way EVs are developing you know you'd have thought that EVs would allow you to have smaller lighter more economical cars and actually what's happening is just the manufacturers are just building these large tanks Powered by electric. So, you know, evidence and logic only get you so far in this debate. <laughs> you know, culture and behavior and identity, I think, are critical. And I think we need to understand that and we need to build that into the way we sell and bring people along. Because how people feel is far more important than just what the evidence tells them they should do. Do you know what's so interesting? Adam, I, Adam and I have an associate, a, a, a person who, who we both know who's peripherally, nodding, yeah. peripherally involved in the cycling world. Who I obviously won't we shall, name. We shall not name. I think um, I feel like I might get a brick tomorrow. Who, who lives in, in, you know, kind of zone four in London, you know, uh -huh. then the ULESI, very ULESI, and does other work in the construction industry that has necessitated, he thought for a long time, having a big flatbed, massive, great big thing that is no way ULES compliant. And he despises ULES, but he sold it and bought a ULES compliant estate car that actually does the job absolutely. The absolutely policy, the policy so works. People so, might hate it. So he's that. been grumbling and grumbling and grumbling, but actually, it's just been in his case been completely effective. Probably cheaper to run as well. That's when I was in Ghent with Philippe Matthew, who is the deputy mayor for transport in Ghent, and they did, yeah, they did the circulation plan. Here. Well, uh, I've got to give context. Um, and um, he took me on a tour of Ghent, where they've basically created a circulation plan with a supersized low-traffic neighbourhood. And uh, when we were going through it, cycling around, about 10 people stopped us to have a chat with Philippe, and most of them, nine, I would say, were like, good job, thank you, this is the best thing that's happened to this city. And then one person came to him, spat on the floor in front of him, went, shame on you, but she was on a bicycle. So she'd followed... <laughs> She'd followed the policy, but she didn't like it. Begrudgingly. And it was nine to one in favour from a, from a public perception yeah. point of view. It's certainly interesting. I'm expecting that for the next three months on Twitter. With the 20 stuff. It is, it is just, just yeah. on that, you know, on the politics of it and, and the personal part of that. Yeah. This stuff seems to anger people in a way that a lot of stuff just doesn't. What's been the reality of that for you as a decision maker? Have you been concerned about the public perception, how that might make you as a public figure feel, etc. Yeah, well, I just, I guess, you know, as a human being, it's really hard because human beings like to be liked. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty confident we're doing the right thing. But I realise that not everyone's going to agree. And that's fine. And that's to be expected. Some people feel, back to this identity point, feel affronted and angry by what we're doing because they think it's taking something away from them, and that makes them 
really cross. You know, that is unpleasant to be at the receiving end of. You know, social media is, you know, famously pretty wild when it comes to this stuff. And I'm, I've taken I'm taking the summer off social media just for my own sanity, to be honest, because it's just horrible. But it does get you down. It, you know, I go reasonably, you know, thick skin. But it does, it, it wears away at you, it chips away. Because you just think, because you don't hear from the people who think it's good generally. Mm. You generally hear from the people who think you're an arsehole. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's, uh, that's, but I think that's just, that's the price of progress though, isn't it? You look at any social or cultural reform in contemporary history, there's always been resistance. There's always people pushing back. Uh, and I and think, it was true with the suffragettes even. There were plenty of people in public life who felt that women shouldn't have the vote. Of course there were, yeah. You, I mean, more recently, you look, you know, you type into YouTube, breathalyzers, and seatbelts. Mm. And the comments people are coming up with are very similar to the comments people are coming up on yeah. Smoking ban. Yeah. Was very similar. La- the Labour Party, not, I'm not saying that, but the Welsh, Welsh Labour, obviously a separate faction, but the Labour Party, you know, it was one of the, min- the health ministers at the time when the smoking ban came in, basically said that poor people should be allowed to smoke as a guilty pleasure. That was sort of, well, you know, quite John strange Reed blind took spots. in the yeah. UK cabinet. You know, that, was a, that was definitely a view. Look, you know, and, you know, there are certainly people in the Labour Party who, who are not wild what we're doing on, on the roads mm. policy. Of course they aren't. You know, there's... And I understand, you know, I understand because, again, back to this motor-normativity, because, and also because we don't have short-term solutions to make people's life better. They're saying, you know, you're taking away my road, but the bus service isn't there. Yeah, I was going to ask also the air pollution this. is still there. And this is, this is anti-working class and anti-people. And, yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's wrong, but I can understand the argument. How are you getting on with the alternatives? Because that has been one of the criticisms I've seen from other politicians. Well, that's Wales. the really difficulty, isn't it? There's a lag because what we're doing here is, is turning the tanker. So, you know, we're, we're setting a different trajectory, which in 20, 30 years' time you will be able to see. You won't see it in the short term. But the congestion problems and the air pollution problems exist in the here and now. We're reforming bus legislation next year, moving away from the fragmented, commercialised, privatised system. You know, there's a reason why London buses work and nobody else's does, because London was the only bit of the UK where buses weren't privatised. So we're, we're bringing in a franchising system, which again, over time, will make buses far easier to organise, to link with trains, to link with active travel, and to have a progressive pricing policy. That'll take time. And that's one of the things I'm acutely aware of, the political peril of. There is a gap between when things are going to get better and where we are now, that's where the maximum danger is, and that's the period we're, we're currently in. I don't think there's much to be done about that, other than to explain, communicate, and hold your nerve. And that's why I'm you know, a little concerned by the reaction by Keir Starmer to the Uxbridge by-election, which was, you know, panic, we're going to lose votes from this, rethink. And I think that's the wrong response. Oh, on that, because oh, it, it's very going to be very interesting, Ned mentioned about the... the this kind of becoming a maybe a bit of a political football, you know, going quite hard on it. I think a lot of people who want better public transport, better active travel, those kind of things, better streets, will feel a little bit disheartened right now because they might not like what the Conservative Party is saying, but they're probably not massively enamoured with what the English Labour Party is, yep. is saying <clears> either. <throat> exactly. And I just, I have this theory, and I mentioned it when the Mums for Lungs founder was on, on mm-hmm. here, and that the Welsh Labour will be used as a, it's already started, be used as a kind of political football, kind of the anti-growth coalition where, you know, you're not building any new roads, you're, you're doing all this kind of anti-motorist, inverted commas, stuff. And then the, you're seeing it with Just Stop Oil and Keir Starmer, you know, Keir Starmer is, is a, a shill for Just Stop Oil, apparently. And what it's going to probably boil down to is Keir Starmer, you're not going to be like Wales, are you, and not build roads. And I have a feeling as a neutral that he might say something like, well, no, we're going to build more roads. You know, we're going to do even more roads than the Tories would. What do you think of the kind of political situation? I know, I know you can say it as an observer slightly from in Wales to, to England, but that's is that far off? Have I got that? Well, first of all, you know, we're not banning road building. We, we will still, still build roads. Uh, we're changing the threshold for when roads are the right solution to a local congestion problem. But but there'll be times when a new road is is the right thing to do. But when we build it, we minimise the embodied carbon, we reduce speed limits, we build in active travel. So it's changing our approach to roads rather than saying we're giving up on roads. And, you know, there's a deliberate misrepresentation of that by the Tory press and the Tory party because it's easier to attack. It's not true. I think the broader point is, well, you know, devolution, as we said earlier, allows us to do different things. Uh, within a common set of values, and that's right. That's how it should be, and we can, should learn from each other. 
I don't accept the characterization that, that the Labour Party is at the UK level uh, weak on this stuff. I think, you know, the stuff on buses, the stuff on active travel that Louise Haig has been talking about, I think it will make a real difference and is very progressive. I think roads policy is, there's greater silence on that. And mm. I think there's, there will be nervousness about what we're doing in Wales and the way that's being characterised, which is why it's important we don't allow the misrepresentation to continue. It needs to be challenged. It's not fact-based. But for sure, for sure, this is a front of contention. Uh, we're used to it. You know, we've, we've been much the butt of the Daily Mail and the Tory party over the health service. Uh, so, you know, we, they like to hold us up and it is difficult for colleagues in the English Labour Party to have to defend what it's like being in government. You know, that's the difference. We're in government in Wales and being in government is really difficult, as I hope Keir Starmer will find out. Um, Faisal Islam, um, the BBC Economics editor, did a tweet about what he describes as the massive elephant in the room on the politics of the car, which is road pricing and the shortfall that no political party is talking about yep. actively um, that we'll, we'll lose from fuel duty yep, and electric absolutely. cars. Uh, and that. Does the Welsh Government have a view on how it will cater for the shortfall in tax and and potentially roads pricing and other things that have been put forward. Well, we don't get the tax because that's a UK Treasury issue. Uh, but we've, I've said very clearly, you know, we're going to have to change the way we tax because for that reason, people aren't going to be paying petrol tax and car tax in the same way. So we're going to have to move to a pay-as-you-use type approach. It's how we design that. So Cardiff Council is the only one in Wales showing any appetite at introducing some charging. Their approach is, it's, it's the thinking is in development, and I think I, you know, I'm challenging it. I think it needs strengthening. I think modal shift should be absolutely at the heart of the way we design these schemes. But also, back to your point earlier about people in London who are driving cars and are not compliant with you, Les, we do have to help people make the transition. Uh, I think Birmingham has, has, done, has done some good stuff on this, where they're giving people uh, grants <laughs> and loans to, to transition into cars which are affordable. You know, there has to be an interventionist approach here with, which has progressive values at its heart. Back to my other principle, we need to make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do because people will do the easiest things. And some people will find it easier than others to transition to electric cars. We don't want everybody to transition to swap one car for another. We want to reduce car use because cars have all sorts of other harms and electric is not a magic bullet and nor should we pretend it is. Mm. But we should absolutely look at how we can help people make that transition and make it easier. Um, I'm interested in, um, if you're not largely not building um, new roads, what are you going to do with your trunk roads body? Because we've got national highways in England. and I think you've got one in Wales. Yeah, so we are, as in, we are currently building roads and we will keep on building roads. We have something called Transport for Wales, which is a little bit like TfL. And what we want to do is to make that into an integrated transport delivery body. So it currently has responsibility for rail, and we're building a metro in uh, southeast Wales. It has uh, responsibility increasingly for some active travel. We want to strengthen that. We basically want to take a more diagnostic approach, which delivers our carbon shift targets, our modal shift targets, and allows it to properly plan and integrate bus, rail, car, active travel. Mm, in the so same way Transport for London does, TfL does. Yeah, absolutely. And Lynn Sloman, who's on the, the board of Transport for London, has led the Lords Roads Review for us. Vernon Everett, who works for Transport for London, is on the board of Transport for Wales, advisor to Andy Burnham. So we're trying to, you know, Phil Jones, we've made the point, is, so we're trying to sort of bring these Venn diagrams together to learn the best of what others have done well. But really we want a transport body that doesn't think about roads, it thinks about how do we move people around. And there'll be a road for roads in that, there'll be a road for buses in that, a road for walking in that. And how do we design and plan the system that delivers optimal outcomes? Yeah, so again, it's about removing silos, or Absolutely. bringing people together. And that's really hard because that's about culture. You know, the old saying goes that culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know, <laughs> I think we're strong on strategy in Wales. I think we're weak on culture and I think we're weak on delivery. That's the challenge. And none of this is quick or easy. And doing all of this in an era of austerity is doubly hard. You know, we're currently having to make some really deep cuts in public spending and that make, goes against the policy objective we have for some of these things. So there's a real tension here in the short term and the politics of it too. You know, look, none of this is easy, but back to, you know, where we started here, the science on climate change is very clear. It's also very alarming and we will not be forgiven if we put the short term ahead of the medium to long term 
because we know what the right thing to do is. Well, I think you've cheered me up. I was quite, I was, <laughs> I was quite angry this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Ned woke up a text saying, I'm really angry. Today. I'm angry. I'm going to be angry. Uh, no, it's been, I think it's been very interesting. And, you know, we, you, you talk, what inspires me slightly is this. I like your approach about, you know, there is no one correct answer here. And there's no, there should be no, because we're, we're pushing at the, borders of the unknown yeah, yeah. here. And um, and it's not just a UK story either. There are learnings, massive learnings to be made, I think, from what our neighbours across the water are doing and, and have done decades ahead of us in many cases as well. That's really and we're gonna We're going to solve this. You're going to need a rapid dose of pragmatism, aren't we? And, and mm. working, collegiate mm. working with, with, with everybody. Um, and not and, just and that was the vibe I got. Yeah, yeah really which is why, which is why, isn't it? Uh, you know, one of our starting points was uh, the very first flippant joke I made about whose side are you on. Which is why that intervention was so unhelpful from the prime minister the other day, because this this notion that there are sides, you know, well, if if he's on the side of a motorist, I've just spent a month driving around France as a motorist. That's all I was. I was a pure motorist. So if he's on my side, he should listen to you. <laughs> That's I, what I think. I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> Um, excellent. Well, I was supposed to do a little bit of banter about what we've all been up to right at the beginning, wasn't I? And I completely forgot. Yeah, don't worry about that. We, all, we had banter. a coffee earlier. We had a, well, uh, you've yeah, been to the Tour de France. I've been to the Tour de France. And I was going to give you a stage by stage blow, you know, blow by blow account. Had a book published, haven't you? I've had 1923. <laughs> you've got your book coming on, it's nearly finished. <laughs> yeah, it's not out for another year, so we're not allowed to talk about it yet. I haven't got a book. Got enough jobs, I think, Adam. I've <laughs> been reading lots of books on the holidays. What are you reading at the moment? I read the chemistry one. What's that called? Uh, uh, oh, yeah, that one that's been a big bestseller. That was great. The, yeah, yeah was, really liked yeah. that. Uh, I the read... Chemistry one. I have no idea. I read a really good book called The Translator, which is a political thriller that the FT recommended. Nice. Like a business of Putin's Russia. That was very good. Nice. I'm currently reading a book by Ben McIntyre on Agent Sonia. He's a brilliant writer. He writes... He's got a really good book on Oleg Godievsky and the uh, uh, the defection. So he's fantastic. I love book recommendations. This is great. We should do this more often. Street to Head Book great. Club. Yeah. Yeah. I only read books about transport. Of course you do. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> we were all looking at traffic in towns uh, yeah. earlier from Neil Buchanan. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. Got some great pictures. It says all the wrong very things. Very scary pictures. <laughs> Colin Buchanan, not yeah. Neil Buchanan. Yeah, sorry. It must uh, be worth some money, that book. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I bought it off eBay. For those oh, who don't know, and there will be people listening to this who don't know, it's published in the early 1960s, and it's a book that details how to ruin cities. Yeah, lots, by, of cars. Uh, lots of yeah. cars. Lots of cars. And it kind of had pedways, <laughs> but going back to one of our earlier episodes, there was a sort of whole pedway thing, raise, mm. raise pedestrian walkways so the cars could get on with the get business the of driving. Get yeah. them up in the air. It explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Lee. It was well, really nice, really enjoyed interesting the, to have you the on board. Uh, you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Our editor has been, as ever, Claire Mansell. Let us know what you think at Pod Streets Ahead. Rate us, review us, and share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. Bye. Bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.